Welcome to the Life Science and Marketing Podcast, where we discuss marketing and career insights and tips with leading experts from across the globe. Let's join our host, Paul Avery, CEO of Biostrata, as he chats with our next Life Science Marketing guest. Today, I am joined by Andrew Patera, or Andy to his friends, um, who is the Executive Director of Marketing and Sales at New England Biolabs, where he's been for nearly 15 years. He's also Chairman-Elect at SAMPS, which is the Sales and Marketing Professionals in Science group um, that we both love being involved with, although um, Andy obviously has to invest quite a lot more of his time in it than I do. Um, so thanks to him for that. Uh, he is a deep life science marketing and commercial expert, having previously held roles at Promega and GE Healthcare and others to go with that um, long stint at New England Biolabs. Andy, it's amazing to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me today. It's my absolute pleasure, Paul. Looking forward to talking to you. Well, I am looking forward to it because I know that you've got a great track record and I would love to hear your story. How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, happy to uh, share. So, uh, I, as you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not from uh, the New England area where I now live. I'm actually from uh, Newport, a uh, town in uh, South Wales. Uh, so, I'm a very proud uh, Welshman. Uh, I was actually uh, uh, born and raised in uh, Newport. Uh, at a young age, I'd always had a fascination for nature and animals in particular. Um, in fact, I wanted to actually be a vet uh, when I was in uh, school and uh, high school particularly. Spent some time working on farms and at uh, local vets. But uh, unfortunately, it's tougher to get into veterinary school than it is into medical school. At least it was then. So uh, my grades weren't quite up to that, let's say. And the thought of going back and trying to push my A-levels from Bs to As and things like that was just too much. So I uh, decided to continue on my path to go to college. Went to King's College in London and um, uh, studied microbiology. So uh, really enjoyed my time there in, uh, in, in London. And at the end of that, uh, had the uh, fortunate position of having two job offers on the table, one with uh, Burroughs Welcome and one with a company that I eventually joined called Amersham, as well as two PhD offers. Um, graduate school at the time anyway didn't exist in the UK, so it was project-based. Uh, and I decided uh, I couldn't really see myself being an academic. I really enjoyed the industrial aspects of research. So decided to um, uh, take a leap of faith and joined a company called Amersham, as I mentioned, uh, where I was working in R&D. Uh, spent uh, a number of years in R&D, um, producing or developing various products for different molecular biology applications. And what I found out from that is I got the biggest kick out of actually commercializing those products or seeing those products be commercialized, talking to customers, finding out how they use the products you developed, how they ignored the protocol you'd written and things of that nature. <laughs> and uh, that led me into a path of uh, looking at uh, positions in marketing, particular product marketing. I actually moved from the molecular biology division into the uh, drug discovery or, or cell biology business, as it was actually called then, and spent uh, seven years uh, um, uh, working as a product marketing manager uh, at Amersham. Uh, to the degree I knew the job inside out, loved it, uh, but it wasn't really challenging anymore. And at the time, I was looking uh, potentially to move uh, to another company. And my boss at the time said, any chance you would be interested in a two-year secondment uh, to the U.S., or staying with Amersham, uh, and managing the cell biology business uh, from a marketing perspective in the U.S.? 
Uh, my daughter had been born, uh, what, about six months prior to that. So my wife was on maternity leave. So it was this perfect uh, time, you know, to uh, go and live in uh, Chicago, as was. So uh, we uprooted everything, uh, family, and moved across to uh, Chicago. Um, I was there about a year, and then uh, the life science division at Amersham merged with Pharmacia Biotech, and we had to uh, leave Chicago to move to uh, New Jersey uh, under the sort of Amersham Pharmacia umbrella. And uh, that sort of led me into a career of, uh, of managing various different parts of the business. The two years of common became four years, and then uh, we sort of signed on the dotted line and became uh, uh, U.S. employees, let's say. Or I was a U.S. employee. My wife obviously um, I got a job elsewhere. Um, and at that time, I, I progressively managed uh, many parts of the business, as I said, eventually the genomics and proteomics uh, businesses for Amersham. And then we were acquired by GE. And um, I learned a lot at GE. I was there for about two years. Um, very fortunate to go to some wonderful training courses uh, at Crotonville and uh, other places like that. But GE really wasn't for me. It was uh, a wonderful experience. They managed things by the numbers, not necessarily by the customers. And the life science division was just too small a part of this uh, behemoth uh, of GE. So I decided to take probably the biggest risk of my career and uh, leave the same company because Amersham and GE was all really one, you know, and I'd been there for about 18 and a half years, something like that, and uh, joined Promega. Um, I moved to, uh, with the family, we moved to Madison, Wisconsin. And Promega was a little bit going back to the early days of Amersham, much more customer focused, much more science focused. Uh, the vacancy I took on as head of marketing there had been a vacancy for, I believe, uh, uh, at least two years, maybe longer. So I had the opportunity to really come in and, and apply the knowledge I'd learned uh, and rebuild that marketing organization. I ended up being with Promega for a little over four years. And then uh, NEB, New England Biolabs, uh, approached me. Uh, they approached me actually a year before, and I wasn't interested at the time. Uh, but they came back and said, would you be interested in managing sales and marketing? And uh, I found that intriguing, which we can come back to later, of that opportunity to manage both uh, sides, if you like, of, uh, of, of the business. And uh, joined New England Biolabs, moved back to the East Coast. And I've been here now for 14 and a half years as uh, Executive Director of um, Marketing and Sales, which uh, means I work with the, uh, our global operation on the marketing front but also have responsibility for sales and now more recently customer service in the US. So it's been a progressive career of uh, um, you know staying focused on science, enjoying that aspect uh, and the connection to the customer, but progressing my commercial skills through marketing initially, marketing and sales, and now obviously management of both. That's awesome. Oh, so many questions. Where should we begin? <laughs> let's start with um, let's start with moving into a marketing and sales role because I've I've interacted with lots of People who head up a division that are responsible for that, often a commercial director of some sort, but a lot of them come from a business development background and not the marketing background. And of course, you come from the marketing background, not the sales background. So what was that like and what did you learn moving into more of a combined role? Yeah, that's, I, mean, I, I was very lucky. Um The marketing, first marketing position I really took on, I moved sites. So I moved from Amersham, uh, its headquarters in Little Chalfont, uh, Buckinghamshire, down to uh, uh, Cardiff uh, in Wales. And I was the only marketing person on that entire site. So I actually still wore a lab coat. Uh, my office was basically off the lab. And literally customers or um, uh, it could be salespeople or whatever rang up uh, for questions. 
And I, I literally could open the door and shout, what's the answer to this? And, and uh, you know, get that answer and, and, you know, answer people very quickly. So it made me look, uh, you know, perhaps better than I was at that time. But it was a real, it was a real interesting opportunity because um, although I had a, obviously a marketing manager, um, you know, most of my sort of uh, early learning of marketing was very much on the job. So I, I almost think of it as applying my scientific background to marketing, thinking about data, thinking about, uh, you know, like the sort of experiments you could actually carry out from a marketing perspective and then applying them to this new world of marketing that I was in. So it was, uh, it really was bottom up and, and on the job. And I, um, uh, I believe very much today it's, it's easier for a scientist to become a marketer than it is a marketer to become a scientist. Yeah, I still think that's true. I, when I think about the sheer complexity of certain scientific topics, having a strong background in it really goes a long way. I think we've, I think marketing and to a certain extent sales, I think we can understand as humans quite intuitively because we're marketed to constantly um, and sort of understand, I think, the surface aspects of advertising at the very least. Maybe when it gets a bit more strategic, it's a, a bit trickier to get your head around without sort of going on formal courses or having some some formal training. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, I think that uh, training is important and uh, particularly in today's more digital world, you know, understanding how the technologies work, I think is an important aspect of that. Um, uh, but really what you're providing is tools around your basic knowledge and experience, you know, that you can actually apply and perhaps do things more efficiently or more effectively, um, you know, and then obviously apply them to the job you're doing at the time. Absolutely. Let's. Um, I love the fact you mentioned technology there, because over the course of your career, I would imagine the technology that you've had access to as a marketer and then as a more commercial sales um, director as well has changed. So how do you think technology's influenced your role, the roles of your team over the years? Great question. And obviously it's changed dramatically. Um, you know, uh, I can remember, uh, you know, spending hours just typing up uh, uh, plans or, or, or putting together um, uh, what they call acetates at the time, you know, to actually put presentation together. It was all all sort of, uh, you know, overhead projectors and changing from sort of one acetate to the next, you know. And of course, uh, most of it was handwritten on those uh, 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 those acetates. So as a consequence, if you made an update, you had to start again. So, right. you know, uh, starting at that basis, it's a huge change to today's uh, very digital, uh, you know, email websites uh, and now sort of uh, CRM and AI driven world. I think the, you know, the biggest change over that period is really the accessibility to data, uh, particularly data around uh, customers, um, you know, we don't have perhaps in the life sciences the same level of data that, uh, you know, some of the larger sort of B2C organizations have, um, which, you know, is good and bad, I think. Um, but uh, having that data allows you now to really start thinking about who it is you're marketing to, you know, uh, thinking about not necessarily one-to-one -one marketing, because I think that's a, that's a hard, that's a challenge within the uh, life sciences and marketing to scientists, because you don't really know them as individuals. You know more about the work they actually do. Mm. But certainly developing pers personas around uh, uh, types of individuals, groups of individuals, segments of the market, I think is now uh, a great way to actually make sure your messages are, um, you know, more applicable to the audience you're marketing to. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because one of the other questions that came to mind while you were taking taking us through your your path so far was you kept coming back to customer uh, customer centricity 
and wanting to be closer to the customers and the science. So what is it about that that's appealing to you? And why do you think it's important for organizations to have that customer-centric viewpoint? Yeah, great question. I mean, the definition of marketing has obviously changed hugely over the years uh, and certainly changed a lot more since uh, since I've been uh, in marketing. You know, more classical definitions revolve around the four Ps, you know, product, price, promotion, um, uh, place, etc. Um, and those those sort of definitions are still important uh, and can be the basics around thinking about what you do with a new product or existing product in terms of marketing. But I believe strongly today, uh, marketing is very much around growing the business uh, by developing best-in-class customer experiences. And I like that definition from two perspectives. Uh, one, growth. Um, you know, marketing is a part of the business. Um, I'm always astounded when particularly people in product marketing say they don't have a sales target. I mean, I've always had a sales target. I don't know whether that's just lucky for the companies I've worked with. But to me, that connects you with sales. It means you see, a, you know, probably the most important metric you're ever going to get as a marketer, you know, the, the results of all your efforts, uh, you know, is customers buying things. Uh, the other aspect of that is through customer experience. And the reason I like that as part of the definition of marketing and why it's so important is it takes marketing away from being a department. Anybody who actually directly or indirectly impacts or touches a customer is marketing, whether it's the person... Um, you know, in shipping, who's actually packaging that product and making sure it doesn't uh, arrive, you know, beaten up and uh, in, in a bad way, or whether it's the customer service person taking an order if they're taking it on the telephone, or technical support, um, uh, you know, supporting a customer post-sale with a problem they might be having. All of those influence, uh, um, you know, the brand and the sort of uh, um, uh, philosophy or thinking that uh, a customer has around that uh, company, and all of that is marketing. So for me, you know, uh, customer experience, customer um, uh, centricity is really one of the most important differentiators a company can have relative to its competition and thus is important for marketing. I think that's a really fascinating way of looking at it. You know, to your point, we, we draw fictional lines in organizations because it helps us organize ourselves and keeps some of the management of things simpler. But in essence we all exist within a company to do, to deliver a quality solution to our customers so they hopefully want more tell their friends and we and, you know through our other activities we grow our brand we attract people to our website we can turn those into leads and hopefully they buy things but i think it's such an interesting point that we sometimes forget that in the pursuit of simplifying roles and drawing lines yeah um so how do totally. you Given your, the role you're in these days, how do you go about ensuring that the whole business were appropriate, but certainly your teams keep that customer experience front and center? Yeah, great question. I mean, there's, there's lots of things that we do, some of which uh, are more impactful than others. So some simple things I do. Every week, I have our CRM system generate uh, randomly five uh, cases of, of an interaction either between customer service or tech support and a customer. And I just scan through them to see, A, what types of questions customers are asking, but also how we answer those uh, questions. Um, you know, simple sort of actions that we've, we've taken around this and some of these predate me is uh, we found uh, when a customer had a problem with a product, 99 and probably more times out of 100, uh, we just replaced the product. Um, so the simple change we made is, unless the order is a significant dollar value, 
the customer service rep can just action that themselves. They don't need to go through an approval route. Uh, they just do it because it's we do really did it anyway, and it's actually the right sort of experience. The customer the customer doesn't want to say here, you know, oh, I got to I got to get my manager's manager's approval to actually replace that product. They can say we understand you got a problem. We're sorry you experienced that. We'll send it out today. It'll arrive tomorrow. So it's a good experience. Customer is satisfied. Hopefully the problem is resolved and move on. So that's one way I do it. Um, on the sales side, I also have a report uh, each week that uh, highlights any um, customer inquiries that are that are aging, if you like. So I look for anything that's more than a week old. And sometimes, and in fact, most of the time, it's usually the sales rep just hasn't moved that case from open to pending or hasn't closed it. Uh, but occasionally you catch one. You know, we all get too many emails and sometimes that email will have got lost. So simple, you know, using, I guess, reports and tools to make sure that the customer experience is of the quality you want is, is one thing. Um, the other one I would highlight, and I highly recommend this to every marketer is get out there. Don't, don't sit in your office, go out and travel with the sales reps. You know, there is nothing more humbling than spending, you know, uh, months developing a piece of marketing collateral and then to see it being used by a salesperson or, or, or uh, overseen by a uh, customer and realize it's the message doesn't come quite, doesn't come across quite the way you were actually planning. So, uh, you know, interacting directly with the customers is uh, even more important to achieve that. You can't, obviously, you can't, I can't uh, uh, track every interaction and those sorts of things, but I think getting a flavor for those randomized ones or seeing yourself is critical. Oh, I love that. There's so much gold in that. If you're listening to this, I hope you're jotting down notes for cool uh, things you might implement in your own team there from from Andy. Thanks for sharing those. I um, I especially love the getting out and about, you know, going on sales calls. You can join those digitally for uh, in a lot of cases now, so there's not even any real cost or travel involved. Mm-hmm. And I was at the Elrig Drug Discovery Conference a couple of weeks ago, and one thing that struck me was I wished more marketing people were at it. Because seeing your materials being used on Booth, hearing the conversations that customers have with your business development reps, seeing what other conversations are happening on other booths, right? Potentially your competitors or businesses that your business might acquire at some point. Just, it seems to me that there's, it's very rare that you can have so much opportunity to learn valuable information in a single place a single time and if you really go into those shows with a plan oh, you can capture so much insight oh i totally agree i mean uh you know maybe we come on to the merits of trade shows as a separate topic but uh that opportunity to interact with a large number of customers in a relatively short period of time is is golden as you highlight um we have a sales meeting actually coming up uh next week and uh uh, one of the salespeople actually came up with the idea of of doing a role reversal where we set up small tabletops that the marketing person is going to uh, man um, and the salespeople take on the roles of customers to try and sort of see how question that the marketing person is learning the type of questions a salesperson getting every day and the sort of salesperson is listening to the answers that the marketing person would, would give. And that's obviously role playing outside of the world of the customer, but doing that with customers and, you know, being asked very often, you know, the questions that you don't think will be asked or, or sometimes they're not even complicated questions, you know, and, and you're thinking, oh, I never thought anybody would ask that of me is, is really, you know, incredibly valuable. Uh, and as I said, humbling as well, because, uh, you know, all the effort you put in to develop a communication tactic and you realize maybe it's, it just doesn't resonate uh, or it's, uh, it's too complex or whatever it might be. Uh, 
and and sometimes you can't get that through through surveys and uh, and sort of uh, you know non face to face interactions because the survey is designed like one question and it's the answer then that then uh, triggers you to ask another three questions that you wouldn't wouldn't have thought to put in a survey. Mm, by definition, that survey's a box, right? You've already yes, created yeah. the game and the rules, and then you've got to play within it. Whereas I love the random stuff that can end up having conversations with on booth. Then yeah. there's the often drinks or networking events that happen at the end where the the game, the size of the box is even larger because who knows what you're going to hear customers say then. Oh, you know, yeah. I've always really wanted to move into this research area, but the technology can't do it yet. And you're sat there thinking, oh, there's a division in my business that can actually help you do that. Like that technology yeah. already yeah. exists today. Yeah. Um, which I think no, is... Totally fair. agree. I love the totally idea agree. of your... Um, from your business development team there as well, because what a great way to foster empathy in the marketing team for what it's like to do that sales role. Because I think when we don't get out of the building enough as marketers, I think we sometimes forget what it's like to be at the sharp end with customers that our customer service people have and that our sales people have. And the more empathy we can have for the business development team, I think the better a job we can do as marketers, as opposed to when we sometimes feel at odds with the sales team, which of course can happen. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the the overlap between sales and marketing, as I mentioned earlier, was one of the things that appealed to me joining New England Biolabs. And, uh, you know, we're fortunate here that we're private, so we don't have quite perhaps the same sort of quarterly earnings pressures that public companies has. But, you know, at the end of the day, you've still got uh, two groups of uh, humans who, uh, you know, got slightly different, uh, um, you know, views on how to achieve uh, the goals they're actually set. Um, so for me, one of the things I really enjoyed was, you know, having those two organizations report to myself and thinking about ways they can actually, they can actually work more closely together. You know, a lot of the challenges they face are identical. They just use different words or, uh, you know, different, uh, analogies, if you like to, uh, to, to, um, uh, to explain those differences. So, you know, getting them to work together in the field, obviously, is, uh, is easier if they all report to myself, uh, you know, because I can actually set those goals for the marketing people to be out in the field X times a year, et cetera, et cetera. But also bringing the salespeople in. Uh, we have a, a quarterly planning meeting where we review all the, all the tactics and the sales numbers from the prior quarter. And, uh, you know, I should give credit to our sales manager because this was his idea. We actually rotate and bring one of the sales staff into those meetings uh, every quarter just to see what it's like on the other side, if you like, and see, you know, sometimes, you know, you don't get appreciation for the amount of effort that goes into a campaign or a product launch or whatever it might be, and the complexities as to why we came up with what we did or how how or why we priced a product or whatever the actual specifics are. Uh, and that is another way of actually connecting uh, those two departments. I love that because I, I can't help but think sometimes when we're marketers and, and for business development people as well, I'm sure it's similar. We've got a set of levers in front of us that we can pull to help drive the success we're looking for, but we've got different sets of levers and we sometimes forget that they're connected to the same machine. Um, so going and seeing the thoughtful, smart way that marketing is setting up and pulling its levers um, as opposed to feeling that maybe not that much thought went in or is it random or did somebody think, hey, this would be cool, let's do it. A lot of those decisions, as you say, they're very often data-driven, they're customer insight-driven, and good marketing teams are thinking a lot about what they do. They're not just doing, right? So yeah, um, yeah. let's talk trade shows. You mentioned trade shows briefly there. Um, what are your thoughts on trade shows? 
Yeah, it's a it's an interesting one at the moment. Obviously, you know, during the period of the pandemic, there were no trade shows, you know, uh, and I'm sure that's for everybody, you know, that budget either didn't get spent or got reallocated elsewhere. Uh, now, you know, I think the first year post-pandemic, you know, it was sort of 50-50 as to whether people were attending, whether they were too nervous to attend, you know, whether they even wanted to attend. And certainly now the more recent trade shows are getting back to, you know, full swing as, as they were pre-pandemic. Um, you know, so we're asking ourselves, you know, you know, you know, is it basically going back to the way we used to work or are there different things and learnings based on today's world that we should have? Certainly, uh, you know, trade shows are becoming not paperless, but uh, less paper, you know, so people, uh, you know, are less interested in taking away, um, you know, brochures and things of that nature than they were previously. I think the customer interactions are still vital, um, you know, and we definitely find that, uh, you know, if you can give a presentation, scientific presentation uh, as part of the uh, conference, then that definitely, you know, is, is a good way of actually driving traffic to your booth. But the booth then becomes a meeting place. Uh, not that's not unimportant, but uh, more than it is a sort of marketing tool, if you like. Um, so so I, I'm not personally, for me, the jury is still out as to what the future of trade shows should be. I, if I'm honest, I was hoping that they would become less important going forward because they are, they're just expensive, you know, and the cost of travel alone is, mm. uh, you know, makes them expensive. And it is hard uh, to truly, you know, quantify their return. You know, as you, as you know, and uh, I think previous uh, guests in the show have highlighted this, we do have this, you know, natural attribution gap uh, within the life sciences that, you know, we can track these various interactions, whether it's on the website, whether it's email, even whether it's at trade shows as the example you're using. Um, but it's very rarely one single interaction that leads to a sale, particularly if it's related to a new product. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, the person who places the order isn't the person who uses the product. So you, you have all this great uh, data around your interactions with the, perhaps the user, but sometimes connecting the actual sale to that user is not always uh, straightforward, particularly in a large uh, academic organizations, for example. So, you know, I view trade shows as one part of the puzzle, you know, um, and you have to, you know, use that that part of the puzzle carefully because they are expensive, but equally they are a way where you have lots of customers in one location. So uh, so there is value, but their true value to me is, is still a, a question I'm not sure I've answered to. Yeah, I think it's very hard to answer the question. And I think my mind has always been what you described earlier, which is, what are the different ways that we can extract value from being at this trade show? Um, obviously, if we can track clear leads that we didn't know before, that we generated at the event and they went on to buy something, then that's fab. But uh, a key thing we do with a lot of our clients, for example, is for a lot of the biggish trade shows, the media are in attendance in force, both the sort of scientific peer review media, but also the trade media. And having them stop by your booth, look at your latest reagents, instruments, whatever it may be, doing a story on those, you can get a, a lot of media coverage off the back of being at an event by just setting up key media interviews on booth and you're there anyway, right? But now you've yeah, just got a, yeah. a string of six months worth of high value media coverage for what is relatively low effort and low cost because you've done it all in one place. And so how, how can you stack the deck in your favor to get value out of the out of the trade show outside of the things you can't measure yeah yeah no i totally agree i mean uh, as you say you're there anyway so it's really uh you know multitasking and maximizing that return and if if you can plan customer interactions or business interactions up front so you're having those business meetings around that because they 
you're there, they're there, uh, then you, you can obviously increase that uh, value. And sometimes that moving the customer along the buying journey is as valuable at a trade show or a, or a conference, let's say, not just the trade show part of it, as it is, you know, starting with somebody who's at the top of the funnel. Yeah. We're just looking to influence, aren't we, at those different stages, yes. however yeah. we can. Yeah. But yeah. Um, I want to come back to marketing in a moment, but this is called mm -hmm. life science and marketing for a reason. So let's come back to you just very briefly. Sure. Um, what would you say is the biggest career tip that you would give someone else based on your learnings throughout your career? Um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll give an example of a, a, of a project when I was actually working in uh, R&D that sort of fascinated me and gave me, uh, I suppose, a great appreciation for the importance of customer insights, which is sort of, you know, fits with the theme we're talking about. We were talking earlier about customer centricity. So I was working on a project, uh, an interesting project uh, that was um, uh, funded actually partly by the EU. It involved uh, um, academic institutes, it involved industrial partners across both the UK and France. And the big goal of the project was to actually automate various processes in molecular biology. Um, the particular one of the projects I was involved with was uh, looking at how you could label uh, nucleic acids, particularly DNA. And at that time, it was all radio labeling. And one of the parts that I was working on is at uh, the time uh, radioactive nucleotides you would store in the freezer you had to keep them frozen um, as a way of keeping them stable. And uh, because we had to automate them, you needed to, you couldn't really keep them frozen, so you had to, or didn't want to actually uh, spend the time thawing as well. So the project I was working was can you can you actually uh, stabilize uh, specifically P thirty two DCTP such you could store it at room temperature. Anyway, uh, cut a long story short, uh, after lots of different experiments, we found a way to actually stabilize it by looking at the uh, buffers that uh, the nucleotides were stored in. The downside to uh, the, the uh, buffer that we had is over time, a chemical reaction occurs such that it, the, the, uh, the liquid went from colorless to this horrible sort of browny black color. So it didn't look very good. It looked like it was deteriorating, even though the quality of the product was fine. Uh, and somebody I can remember who came up with a smart idea. Let's just add a dye to the uh, to the to the liquid so that you basically you know cover up the discoloration. And uh, after some experiment, we found a dye that didn't in effect it didn't interfere with the actual use of the nucleotide, and it was red. Uh, anyway, uh, the project uh, to automate the this particular labeling didn't go ahead, but we commercialized uh, this stable nucleotide. And the fascinating thing was uh, customers couldn't care less of the fact it was actually stable at room temperature. Uh, they actually liked the fact that they kept all their radioactivity in, uh, you know, in lead vials actually in, in, the, in the freezer because it was away from everybody else, you know, and they could have a dedicated freezer just for radioactive products. But suddenly now you'd actually created uh, radioactivity that you could see because when you added it to the vial, uh, the experiment you're doing, you could see this red color. If you accidentally spilt it on the bench in the hood or whatever, then you could see, you know, splashes of red. And the product took off and was a great success, but it had nothing to do with actually the uh, scientific objective, which was to stabilize it. It was about the unforeseen uh, benefit of actually making the, the radioactivity visible in this case, and you could actually follow it. And the, the insight really was, you know, really thinking about how the customer actually used the product and the challenges they had, and the very simple thing that you can't see radioactivity, but now you could. So it actually reduced some of that sort of uh, uh, challenge that they actually had. 
And since then, I've been involved in a number of ethnographic uh, studies, actually watching customers use your products and things like that. And it's absolutely fascinating to see, you know, how customers, different customers use products in different ways and the sort of tips and tricks they've sort of been trained at as scientists that uh, you don't always think about as a marketer. So a bit of a long story, but hopefully that uh, uh, is, a, is an interesting one um, that concludes a tip, I guess, to marketers is, you know, never try and second guess, uh, you know, how customers are going to use your products, go out, talk to them, you know, carry out surveys, you know, don't be afraid to ask dumb questions as well, because sometimes they're the ones that actually uncover insights that uh, are not always obvious. I love that. A friend of mine's a, um, a user experience researcher, and he always talks about the value of actually observing people use a product because they will do things, whether that's software, like you're sort of watching yeah. them browse a website or, a, or an app or whether it's a physical product like an instrument. Even just simple things when you show it to them the first time and they're trying to figure out how to switch it on and you see where they instantly reach for where they think the on button should be, which is more often than not, not where you placed it, um, yeah. I think can be fascinating. And your story especially resonates with me because I remember when I was in the lab doing my PhD, my preferred PCR reagents, I think it, I think it was Thermo Electron before they were part of Thermo Fisher or Maybe they did root the thermo for sure. I don't know. But the reason we all used it in the lab is because it had the loading die already in it. Mm -hmm. So when you got your results, you know, your PCR had run, you needed to put it in a gel to run it. You didn't have to worry about adding any loading die because it was already in. So it's just one less step yeah. that you had to worry about. We loved that. Yeah. No, I tell you, sometimes the sim simplest uh, uh, sort of features are the ones that actually resonate, that resonate the most. And, um, I, I particularly like that uh, um, particular type of product because I think it gives a nice aspect that sometimes gets forgotten about uh, in the life sciences, and that's life cycle management. You know, we're very much focused on the latest and greatest, you know, what's the new product and all the rest of it. But sometimes there's more revenue and more, um, you know, share you can gain by really thinking about how you can reinvent existing products. That's not always the product itself. Sometimes it could be the packaging. Sometimes it could be the protocol. Sometimes it could be, you know, uh, the application with other products. So lifecycle management uh, is a great way to actually evolve and uh, develop products based on customer insights. Yeah, that's that's a topic we haven't really talked about much on the podcast so far, lifecycle management. So have you had much experience then reinvigorating products in some of the mechanisms you described? Yeah, I mean, um, so many, many different types. I mean, uh, a great example that predates me at uh, New England Biolabs is uh, restriction enzymes. So for the audience who uh, might not be scientists, restriction enzymes are the scissors, if you like, of, uh, of molecular biology. They cut DNA in very specific uh, uh, places. Uh, NEB was one of the first companies to actually commercialize uh, restriction enzymes uh, in its early days. Um, Initially, they were, um, you know, purified uh, from the organism in which they were uh, originally uh, identified. Uh, over time, they become recombinant, uh, which allows you to manufacture them uh, uh, more easily. But then the first sort of evolution of that was to actually add the buffer as part of the uh, product. So initially, you buy the enzyme, and then you would actually have to make the buffer up yourself. Adding the buffer, you know, it's a convenience factor. Some people, you know, thought that was a waste of time, prefer the scientists to make themselves, but you'd add a convenience factor to that. Over time then, uh, example you highlighted, we uh, uh, 
that there are many different restriction enzymes all using different buffers. So we modified the restriction enzymes to use less buffers uh, to the day where you have most of them now using a single buffer. That again, simplifying the process, particularly if you're using um, you know multiple restriction enzymes at once. And then more late, more recently, you know, looking at uh, things like temperature, can they actually all work at the same temperature? And then uh, even more recently, adding loading buffers uh, to the actual buffer itself, so that when you use a restriction enzyme, you can add it directly onto a gel to see what you've actually fragmented. So, you know, this is obviously over many decades, but you know, you keep adding to the actual um, product so that the product is actually fresh and new for the customer. But most importantly as well, particularly, you know, when um, uh, products and most most products, enzymes don't really become truly uh, um, uh, consumables, let's say, and, and commoditized. But, you know, to prevent the price eroding, you can add value by these sort of improvements, most of which are not technically, you know, big lifts. Um, but, you know, they're convenience uh, advantages to the customers that can hold your price. I love that. So for listeners if you if you work at a life science business that has a range of products where perhaps there's older products that these days maybe don't feel as exciting as the new things you're launching what opportunity is there in really going back and looking at some of those products and thinking do these meet current market needs what incremental but powerful changes could we make to them that's going to offer value to customers that's going to help us maintain or even capture further market share for those products i think that's a great Great. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And some of them are simple. As I said, even packaging is a, a great way to uh, enhance uh, value to a product. Uh, you know, um, you know, we all hate those, uh, you know, plastic manifolds that you, you know, cut your finger trying to open uh, to open up whatever's inside. You know, th- there's better ways to package things that uh, can win you market share, even if the product itself inside the package doesn't change. Absolutely. We had a, a company who we used to use their DNA extraction kits, and I guess there must have been RNA extraction kits. One of the boxes was bright blue and the other box was bright red, but that mm. did make like brand recognition for those oh, yeah. products. Yeah. You'd see all the empty boxes outside the labs that were like cracking through lots of molecular biology. And it was, yeah. it's all these subconscious triggers that are like, oh, we've run out of DNA extraction kit. Well, I know which one I'm going to buy because it's the one I just yeah. saw that I know clearly who the brand is. Mm. Um, yeah, no, no, uh, the, uh, Company you're referring, referring to, beginning with Q, has been very successful in that market, and that was a very simple way of, um, you know, uh, of differentiating those two products. But also in that case, you know, because the, the uh, products are uh, um, stable at room temperature, you know, they have great brand recognition on every molecular biology uh, lab shelf in the world, probably. You know? Absolutely, absolutely. So there's another one. Of course, it's going to be zingers. Um, Lauren will convert this into a blog post. I think it's going to be on the long side, given the <laughs> amount of uh, tips and tricks in here so far. But um, one more is when you mentioned restriction enzymes, you reminded me of a brief conversation we had at SAMPS in Glasgow this year about the NEB catalog. And what a brilliant example of content marketing it was before content marketing was a thing by having, and for those of you that aren't uh, ex-scientists or that don't know much about um, NEB in the catalog, as well as including all the products like the restriction enzymes and all the different proteins and the nucleotides and all the things that you can order from NEP, it also basically was part textbook explaining how that particular reagent works, the conditions under which it works well, what might cause it to work badly and how to troubleshoot it. So it actually was a bit of a molecular biology bible for optimizing your experiments in the days before lots of that information could be found on the web. 
And we'd literally have the NEB catalog in our lab, not just to help us with ordering, but to help us troubleshoot our experiments, which is just a genius way of making your catalog part of your product. Yeah, very much so. I mean, uh, New England Biolabs has been producing a catalog since 1975. Uh, company was formed in 1974. So we have a 50th birthday uh, next year. Um, and the interesting thing is uh, that first catalog didn't include that technical reference guide, but I think it was the second one. But also interesting, that first catalog in 1975 was made of recycled paper. Um, you know, uh, so another aspect of NEB is sustainability. So I just throw that one in as, a, as an interesting thing to think about. But you are totally correct that uh, the catalog uh, and its longevity has really been about that last third of the catalog, not necessarily the, the price list or the list of products, but really those technical reference guides. And even to this day, you know, um, you know, you go into many of our customers' labs and you'll see, you know, older catalogs that they don't want to part with because they got posted notes or folded over pages, uh, you know, uh, where they're referencing things, you know, on a whatever basis to uh, to use. And sometimes... You know, if you're in the lab and you've got gloves on, it's easier to handle a piece of paper than it is to sort of go on your phone and look something up, you know, just uh, from a practical perspective. Um, that said, uh, well, two things, actually. The, we talked earlier about customer experience, and I think that catalog is definitely an experience that uh, has allowed NEB to, you know, in some ways punch above its weight a little bit, uh, you know, to have a bigger presence in those labs than perhaps its, uh, you know, monetary market share actually has. Uh, it's also allowed us to create um, and, and, and develop a brand that is very much around putting science first, you know, because, uh, you know, many of those technical reference guides are not directly related uh, to the products we sell. You know, they're more uh, valuable in an in indirect uh, perspective. But that said, the world is turning digital. So, uh, you know, we do see the, you know, the number of catalogs we produce each year and we still do produce it uh, are getting less. And customers are, you know, looking for digital experiences alongside um, uh, the catalog, the printed ones. Um, but we still, we still produce it. We still get. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure the, the recent stats, but it used to be about a thousand uh, requests for people just ringing up, send me one, you know. And that's just in the U.S. And a lot of them are used as teaching aids today, to be honest with you. Uh, so they used as textbooks, as, as you sort of highlighted. Yeah, and ultimately the world changes. We talked about technology right at the start of this interview, and the certainly my my time in the lab the internet was a thing but probably wasn't useful like it is today and of course i was being taught by pis and postdocs that were very much pre-internet so for them there was like there's two books you need you need maniatis and you need the neb catalog and between those two you can probably solve 80 percent of the problems that you're going to have um but today's pis have perhaps grown up in the world of the internet today's postdocs the same and the phd students who will be those PIs and postdocs and not much time will, will be very digital first, I can imagine. And I guess that's just a, an indication of how you've got to keep evolving as technology evolves. Yes, totally true. It's, a, it's an interesting time. We've been ourselves trying to understand uh, how scientists, particularly those that are doing lab work, uh, will use mobile devices going forward. Um, you know, uh, it's an interesting one, particularly in academia, because that, uh, uh, that's, that, that mobile device is your, also your personal device. Um, you know, so it, you know, it's this intrusion of where, where's the, where's the line between, uh, your home life and your work life, if you like, on that, that single device. Mm. And what we were, what we were finding, we were, what we were, the, the experiments we were trying to do was to, um, 
to reduce the amount of paper we, we send out with a product, uh, have a QR code actually on the product so the customer could actually, um, you know, scan that QR code, call up the actual protocol, you know, and then read it uh, on their mobile device. But the use of the QR codes was pretty much non-existent. And yet you go to our website and protocols are one of the most downloaded uh, aspects uh, of, um, uh, of our website. So, you know, we're trying to actually, you know, correlate the two. And I think the simple thing was protocols are not easy to read on the phone, you know, that, that you can't practically use them. And very often people like to actually print them out because it's, it's uh, you know, something they actually have on their lab bench that they can sort of follow through or maybe check off the steps they're doing. So now we're thinking, how do you connect that mobile experience with the desktop experience? You know, uh, so I don't know, can the QR, you scan the QR code, but it actually just sends it, sends a note directly to the printer to print off the protocol, or it sends an email uh, link to, uh, to your uh, desktop that you can actually go directly to the protocol rather than searching on the website. So, and this is a very simple example, but I, I'm intrigued about how the life sciences, you know, will evolve this sort of uh, interface between mobile, desktop, digital, and physical, you know, as uh, as technology moves forward. That's a really good point. Another good example of what happens when you observe customers, right? I was in yeah. the lab 15 years ago, so I'm sure it's not like this now, but writing on protocols was the best way to capture the details that you needed that weren't in the protocol, either because you learned something about the protocol that you needed to add or modify in some way, or because there was kit or stuff that you wanted to remember what freezer it's in, or, oh, I have to go to Bob's lab to get that particular reagent because we don't actually have it in our lab. And you just make those notes on the printed version so that you end up yeah. with a, your version of the protocol in essence. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I remember those days. And then you used to... Uh, 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 sticky tape the uh, protocol into your notebook, you know, so, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, with obviously uh, electronic lab notebooks, it's a little bit uh, different these days. But Yeah, I'd be fascinated to go and see what the what a PhD student sat at the bench is doing now and whether they've got a screen on all the time and if they're using digital notebooks yeah. like we used um, handwritten ones. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, I've seen both. I think it's in a state of flux, to be honest with you, with, uh, um you know, a lot of it being guided by who the uh, um, teacher is, the, prof the professor, the PI or whatever that's uh, the sort of uh, leads that uh, group, you know, and influence in their direction, you know, so. Well, maybe one day we'll have like, well, I know it should be NEB, but we used to call NEB Neb in my lab. Um, so we need a ne <laughs> we need a Neb bot, right? I need to be able to speak to a bot about, <laughs> I want to use this restriction enzyme. What, what should I keep in mind? Yeah. What can go wrong? And then the bot just talks yeah. to me out of some speaker in the fume hood. Well, we yeah, we've, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier um, about my early days uh, in marketing and, you know, really thinking about marketing as, as a science and carrying out experiments. And we certainly uh, have done that uh, here as well as other positions I had. One example that I was going to bring up relative to what you said is we, we still actually have it. We built a skill on the Alexa platform where you could actually ask, ask Alexa, what's the cut site of, you know, restriction enzyme uh, X or echo one, if you want to use an example, what buffer should I use of? If I'm doing a double digest, which buffer should I use? And it, and it, it works. I mean, uh, it has the same challenges uh, that Alexa has in terms of doesn't always understand accents and things like that. Uh, but, you know, the skill actually works, but the adoption of it just wasn't there. Uh, even though, you know, you do see uh, sometimes, you know, Alexa's in labs and things just play music, to be honest with you. But, uh, mm -hmm. um, but just, I think that's the, that's the beauty of uh, of today's digital world 
is it's relatively inexpensive to experiment with things like that. And, uh, you know, I would say, what's the worst going to happen? You know, somebody thinks you're innovative, you know, that, <laughs> the technology may not take off, but uh, the end result, oh, that was cool, you know, uh, even if they don't use it, you know. I mean, we'd, we've been playing with QR codes and I go back to the catalog uh, and, uh, you know, the QR code can basically bring the page to life. It could be, you know, open up a video or uh, um, a lot of our, well, sorry, Maybe all of NDB's catalogs have uh, a nature image on the front, so you can actually hover over that uh, image. At the moment, it's uh, a polar bear, and uh, it tells the story of the polar bear, you know, and global warming and things like that. So just another way to interact uh, with customers and trying to bridge that uh, digital to uh, uh, print, in this case, uh, uh, into context. There you go. If you're listening and you're close to a lab, you need to run to your lab now. Get yeah. the latest uh, edition <laughs> of the catalog and see if you can get the uh, the live yeah. cover to play for you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I had this conversation yesterday with a with a company. Even when you've got an amazing idea, technological innovation, easier, faster, better way of doing something, you sometimes your biggest competition is still inertia, right? Like yes. people don't want to change. They do it the way they do it because they've always done it that way. Even yeah. if your way is like ten times easier and better, sometimes it's just still hard to get people to um, to adopt it. It is, yeah, and that's both internally and with customers. To be honest with you, I think internally, uh, well, what, maybe go back a stage. One of my um, uh, prior managers uh, had the expression "steal with pride," um, and what he actually meant by that was, you know, you know, life sciences is a relatively small industry. Uh, but never be afraid to, you know, take marketing ideas, you know, uh, commercial ideas from other industries and try and invent them for life sciences. I mean, I've heard you say this a number of times, you know, scientists are humans and they're influenced in the same way every human is. So if there is a successful tactic in another industry, although you might need to tweak it, never be afraid to sort of take it and try it. Just because it was in, you know, a, I don't know, fast consumer good industry or something like that doesn't mean it can't work for life sciences. It just needs to be tailored to to that uh, particular audience, you know. I think you're so right. There's so many times in my own lab experience, but also when I moved into the commercial world and I was at trade shows where a sexy looking instrument trumped a boring looking instrument every day of the week. Um and it's that little bit extra money and that little bit extra thought, but to really create something iconic that sits in people's labs, they will be proud of that. People from other labs will come to see it. I know that sounds bizarre, but they will. Um, yeah. And I think those things are worth investing in. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you look at a lot of the next generation sequences these days and they have a different colored blue. Sometimes they're blue, sometimes they're green, you know, like the sort of pulses uh, back and forth. I mean, does that have to be there? No. I mean, uh, does it look cool? Damn right it does. And it, it's, it, it begs a question. People come, what is that? You know, uh, so, uh, you know, it's, uh, I think it's just a way of, uh, of um, you know, uh, upselling the technology, you know, with some very simple, uh, um, you know, aspects to it. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I want to respect your time, Addy, because I could speak to you for hours. In fact, I've tried to bend your ear for hours at the different events we've we've <laughs> been at, so it probably shouldn't surprise you. Um, if people want to follow up with you um, personally, what's the best way for them to get hold of you? Is it LinkedIn or email? Yeah, or link yeah LinkedIn is probably the easiest. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy for people to email me as well, but uh, I get a lot of emails, so LinkedIn is probably the best way, and that differentiates it uh, from the work traffic, let's say. 
So yeah, uh, reach out at, uh, at uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. There are not too many Bateras in the world, so you should be able to find me fairly quickly. And it's, it's I think it's, I, I can't remember on LinkedIn with Andrew and Andy, to be honest with you, but uh, look under New England Biolabs and you'll find me. Good stuff. And uh, yeah. maybe we should place a little strategic plug for the upcoming SAMPS event uh, in the US in December, because I'm sure there'll be some people listening that Definitely. might be interested. Could you tell us, give us the one minute yeah. on what's going on? Will do. So uh, maybe just uh, if people don't know what SAMS is, uh, I think in your introduction, you said it's, uh, you know, it stands for Sales and Marketing Professionals in Science. It's an all-volunteer uh, organization that uh, puts on uh, networking and uh, webinar events with really the aim of saying there are not a lot of um, uh, activities or uh, events within the life science sales and marketing world that are put on by sales and marketing people in the life sciences. So it's opportunities to connect with people who are doing the same jobs with you. Uh, this year, we're back to normal, having done uh, a conference in Europe in Glasgow earlier in the year where Paul and I were both at. And we have uh, an event um, uh, in Boston, uh, which is our US conference. It's uh, of the date, December 6th, if I remember the date correctly. I apologize if not, but it's uh, the first week in December. And uh, if you look up uh, SAMPS, S-A-M-P-S dot org, uh, you'll find the details on the website there, but uh, it should be a fun event. It's uh, focusing around the uh, practical uses of AI today as well as tomorrow. And you'll have great speakers like Paul. <laughs> the other speakers that are great, but I'll certainly do my best. And yeah. <laughs> um, I think the buzz at the Glasgow event, like I thought it would be cool because I think it's a cool topic, but the buzz at the Glasgow event was significant. So I think this this event in the US is going to probably be even more exciting. Um, plus it's it's the other aspects. I, I'm not sure if it's on the agenda, but the ask the customer anything sessions are yes. absolute yeah. gold. Yes, that's true. Yeah, we've uh, done that many meetings. I was um, I had the pleasure of hosting the uh, that event in Glasgow, and uh, what we do, we bring uh, depending on the thing on the thing three or four customers from various sort of uh, areas of science, and literally the audience can ask them anything. They've been primed that uh, they can talk about specific products, they can talk about pricing, they can talk about funding, they can talk about marketing tactics, they can talk about you know, why they use uh, a one social media uh, channel versus another. And uh, if it's like Glasgow, uh, you know, you find one of the individuals uh, likes operating one way and the next person next to them operates in a totally independent way. But it, uh, it's real uh, valuable take-homes. And uh, if you want to uh, see a summary of that, there's actually, uh, I think, a blog on the uh, SAMPS uh, site where you can read about that event. Uh, uh, SAMS, I should say as well, is free to join, so uh, you don't actually have to uh, uh, pay to gain access to that content or uh, listen, to, uh, listen to the uh, webinars or um, read the blogs. Uh, there is a relatively small fee for attending the conference, which uh, uh, we're a non-for-profit, so it's not to sort of make any money. It's really just to cover the cost of the venue and the food and that stuff. Absolutely. So, so yeah, Andy and the team do an amazing job over at SAMS. If you haven't checked it out yet, you should, because there's a lot of great content there already. And as, as Andy alluded to, uh, the events are uh, fairly unique in the life sciences, I think, at this point, which is which is brilliant. Um, Andy, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Paul. I really enjoyed it. It's always great to be able to talk about uh, uh, marketing and marketing in the life sciences. Uh, so hopefully uh, uh, people find the content of value. I'm sure they will. And I'll look forward to catching up with you soon. Cheers. Then bye now. Thank you for listening to the Life Science and Marketing Podcast. 
For your regular dose of cutting-edge life science marketing insights, don't forget to subscribe. Join us again in two weeks for another engaging expert discussion. We'll be right back.